What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. television set the screen is not deceiving you the half man half amazing no longer cornrow wearing but still savoir faring jaw dropping bottle popping modern day mac is back i think everybody here is tired of seeing self-absorbed egotistical, megalomaniacal owners doing whatever they want without regard for the talent or the fans. Understand, I love professional wrestling. I am a professional wrestler. And because I love professional wrestling so much, I could not stand by and watch, just watch this business that I love so much, just get run down. It's time for people learn that you cannot do whatever you want. You can't disregard the fans, you can't disrespect the talent. The time is now for that change. Man Power Trip of Wrestling, and you are listening to episode number 301 of the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling podcast, brought to you today empowered by the IRW Network. 
Head on over to IRWnetwork.com and check out brand new episodes of the Triple Threat podcast featuring the franchise Shane Douglas, as well as us, the two-man power trip of wrestling, uploaded every single week with brand new content from you, the fans, as well as from the mind and the world of the franchise Shane Douglas. And again, it's over at IRWnetwork.com. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we explore MLW's one shot once again as we welcome in one of the stars of the upcoming event in Orlando, Florida. It is the one and only MVP joining today's program. And MVP is here to talk all about MLW's one shot and his battle against Sammy Callahan, or by the time you're done with this interview, perhaps you'll be calling him Sally Callahan. But no doubt, MVP making his long-awaited MLW debut for Court Bauer and the folks with MLW. Now, if you listen to the episode with Court Bauer, you will understand that story as Court Bauer relayed to us in the episode we had him on a few weeks back that MVP, while with the WWE, told Court Bauer that basically they passed him up when he was still an up-and-coming prospect and now reaching the WWE with his character that he had created. MVP went on to have quite the career in spite of a guy who he'd go into quite a good business relationship with later on down the road in Court Bauer, thus really showing that the two of them collaborate very, very well together. But it took quite the uh, quite the journey to get to MLW for MVP, which saw him master the WWE, become a multiple-time United States champion, depart the WWE in, in a pretty abrupt fashion and going off to do his own thing and go over to New Japan Pro Wrestling, which was an absolute career goal for MVP and to go over there and become an intercontinental champion and go on to have matches with just basically every big name you could throw out there from New Japan Pro Wrestling right before New Japan Pro Wrestling took off and has exploded here onto the United States scene the way they have with all of the United States fans that didn't know about New Japan before taking to the product and really seeking out everything they can of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Well, MVP was basically uh, one of the leaders in being the, 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 the guys that helped get that exposure to this American audience. And you got to give MVP a lot of credit for that because he'll tell you in this interview, and he said it before, that was his career goal was to wrestle in Japan. And he did so, and he did so in quite big fashion a few years back. But we talk about everything in this interview. We talk about his time in the WWE. We talk about the how the character came about of Montel Vontavious Porter and a lot of the cool things he did there. And this is a very fun interview, but the focus is on MLW One Shot, and it is coming your way in just a matter of days. And John, as I welcome you in here now, I know this was a really cool interview to get under the belt of the two-man power trip, but also, you know, it falls into the category of you never know what to expect when you have one of these interviews scheduled because I didn't think we were going to be going that deep with MVP. I thought that we were going to have somewhat of not a short talk, but I didn't think it was going to be as in-depth as it was, but it was such a joy to have MVP on, and he really is such a credit to the MLW organization, and to be a part of this one-shot return is quite the epic 
debut for MVP, and it is quite a big fashion for him to get in there with Sammy Callahan and do it upright on a big stage like they will have at One Shot. So, John, as I welcome you in here now, why don't you talk a little bit more about the interview, give us a couple of the highlights that we have to look forward to, and tell us a little bit more about MLW's One Shot. Yes, Chad, back here again at the two-man power trip of wrestling and back with a vengeance. And, of course, like you said, back to promoting MLW's One Shot, October 5th, Thursday night, coming up very, very soon at the Guilt Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. If you can't be there live, if you can't be in Orlando that night, check it out on MLW.TV 72 hours later. And enjoy the smooth sounds of Rich Bocchini, a.k.a. Rich Brennan, and of course, the legendary, the iconic, one of the greatest ever in the history of our sport, Tony Schiavone. So you're really, really going to enjoy that 72 hours later on MLW.TV if you can't be in Orlando that night for one hell of a night. One hell of a card being built, whether it's Ricochet versus uh, St. Strickland, whether it's our guest MVP versus Sammy Callahan, whether it's filthy Tom Lawler against Jeff Cobb. They've got it all, and it's going to be a huge, huge card Thursday night in Orlando as MLW makes its return. And, of course, one of the big matches involving our guest today, MVP, is against Sally Callahan, a.k.a. Sammy Callahan. And, obviously, Chad, you alluded to it, and it's a very funny thing in the interview. Uh, MVP, just for whatever reason, uh, now refers to Sammy Callahan as Sally. So if you see MVP at the show or you want to reach out to him uh, on Twitter or whatever, just make sure you call Sammy Callahan Sally, and he might get a good little laugh out of that. So anyway... That's going to be one hell of a slugfest. It's going to be a really, really good match as far as strong style, and you know that they're going to stiff the shit out of each other, so that's going to be fun. But as far as the interview is concerned, we do delve deep into MLW, why Court Bauer didn't use him the first time around when MLW was going on, basically his entire WWE run all the way from start to almost finish, but we really mainly focus on The Undertaker a little bit, a little bit on Kane, a lot on Chris Benoit, gave a great, great... WrestleMania story about Benoit gave a lot of back, uh, backstage info, behind the scenes, if you will, info on his relationship and friendship with Chris Benoit outside of the feud, outside of wrestling. So that was really good and really enjoyable and really very cool to hear from him because sometimes when you get guests on, they give you a little bit of story, they don't give you the whole thing. MVP goes into the entire story in detail, so that was great. We also get the entire story of Montel of Ontavius Porter, the MVP character that was used first in Deep South and then in the WWE. We get a great story of Johnny Ace. We get a great story on Vince. We get some good stuff on Matt Hardy as well, who was a huge part of SmackDown for a long time, along with MVP. Like MVP says in the interview, for a little bit of time there, MVP and Matt Hardy were carrying the show. They were the biggest part of SmackDown, whether it was over the U.S. title or they were tag champs. They really did kind of carry that show for a little bit, and it's just a testament to MVP and the great athlete and great performer that he was. Another thing about MVP that really stuck out to me and really interested me was where the psychology of that character came from. Where did the gimmick come from? Yeah, oh yeah, you know, he's 
copying Deion Sanders or he's copying an NFL player or a cocky basketball player. Yeah, you might think that from the outside looking in, but there's much more to that story. When he was working those nightclubs in Miami, when he was really watching some of these big-time athletes, how did they act? How did they perceive themselves? What kind of way did they carry themselves? So that was kind of a huge psychology point in putting into the character. So when you're creating MVP, when you're creating Montel Vontavious Porter, there's much more to it than just oh, he's copying an NFL player or he's acting like a football player. No, watch the mannerism, watch what he does. Every little tidbit that he puts into the character, the outfit, which we get a great story of some outfits that he didn't like, like the original, but it's just so much more to MVP than just saying, oh, he's just playing an ex-jock. So really, really, you know, you're going to enjoy this one. There's so much little intricacies that I really enjoyed to this interview, and I really loved that we got so much more time out of MVP than I thought. It was really a long, lengthy, fun interview. I really couldn't have been happier with it. And I know, Chad, I know you were ecstatic afterwards. Like, man, like, MVP is deep. He goes deep with us. Great stuff. And, of course, I got to mention, talk deeply about New Japan Pro Wrestling. We go in-depth to everything and everything New Japan from when he started with New Japan, why he left New Japan. We talk about the Invasion Tour. We talk about him winning the IC title. We talk about Tanahashi, Okada, Naito. We talk about them all. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little MVP. Without a doubt. And again, we want to thank MVP for coming on and giving us so much time to talk about MLW's One Shot again. It is October 5th, the MLW One Shot taking place in Orlando, Florida at the Guilt Nightclub. You can get all the information at MLW on their Twitter, on their ticket site, at eventbrite.com, searching MLW, all the places that you can find MLW has information about this event and is going to be such an awesome return with Rich Bocchini, formerly from WWE's NXT, and the return of Tony Schiavone to the broadcast booth. So many cool things going on at this MLW one-shot and the Ricochet versus Shane Strickland match. I mean, so much to look forward to, and MVP is going to be such a big part. And remember... If you see MVP at that show and you start bringing a Sally Callahan sign with you, you remember MVP will come out and shake your hand personally if you have that Sally Callahan sign. So do it. Represent the show. Give us a little love. Show the two-man power trip of wrestling's power at MLW's One Shot and get your butts to the Guilt Nightclub on October 5th. And you will not regret it. But, John, as we said, to start off this show, today's episode is brought to you by the Triple Threat Podcast and the IRW Network, our new show on the IRW Network. It is an amazing collection of stories from the franchise Shane Douglas, a lot of news, a lot of current events, a lot of stuff going on in professional wrestling, but also a lot of fan interaction. And if you haven't hit us up at the triple threat pod at gmail.com and sent in your questions to be answered by Shane Douglas, you are completely missing out as this current week's episode is all fan questions that have been submitted and look forward to what Shane has to say because it is quite the episode as it always is when we answer strictly fan questions as part of our Ask Franchise Anything series. So get on over to IRWNetwork.com today and stream every episode of the Triple Threat Podcast. 
But John, if you didn't know this by now, why don't you hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get this show on the road and over to the one and only MVP. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. October 21st, we hit the Legends of the Ring in New Jersey. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former two-time WWE United States Champion, a former WWE Tag Team Champion, a former New Japan Pro Wrestling Intercontinental Champion, you may know him as Montel Vontavious Porter, but we know him as MVP. Please enjoy. One, two, you hear the clock ticking. Tick, time. You about to stop living. Tick, time. I want you to remember me. Tick, time. But the day don't have no memory. I'm coming. Nobody can stop me. Nobody can hold me. Nobody can control me. I'm coming. I'm here to do my thing. I'm here to bring the pain. I'm never ever gonna change. Like Tropicana, I got the juice. All for the least, they let the dog loose. Don't make me call up the crew. Now they getting scared when I call up a truce I'm the one like Neil, cocky like Teal Nobody can garbage like I'm shooting the freak though This is illegal, my flow is legal And it's me, it will never be a secret I'm coming! Nobody can stop me, nobody can hold me Nobody can control me I'm coming! I'm here to do my thing, I'm here to bring the pain I'm never ever gonna change I'm coming! Nobody can stop me, nobody can hold me Nobody can control me I'm coming! All right, well, joining us on the line today is a former WWE United States Champion, a former WWE World Tag Team Champion, and a former New Japan Pro Wrestling Intercontinental Champion, one of the most flashy individuals you're ever going to see in a professional wrestling ring as 
Montel Vontavious Porter, otherwise known as MVP, joins us today. MVP, thank you so much for coming on with the two-man power trip. Pleasure's all yours. <laughs> it's definitely all ours now that we can hear you and all our technical difficulties are uh, are long behind us, but... MVP is going to be making his, and I'm going to use Court Bowers uh, saying here, long-awaited MLW debut on October 5th as part of MLW One Shot, which is a very highly and very, very anticipated event. MVP, how do you feel about the MLW debut, which I know is many, many years in the making for you? Uh, it's past due. When I was uh, coming up in the Indies, I was wrestling as Antonio Banks. I was at an MLW show at the uh, War Memorial Auditorium. And by this point, I had already made friends and uh, been under the tutelage of Norman Smiley, who was in attendance. Uh, I knew Sabu and uh, Vampiro. I had known from Puerto Rico. Uh, Billy Fives, who was another indie guy who had done some WWE work. I had a, a bunch of reputable guys there telling court, give this kid a shot, give him an opportunity. Court would never use me, never, for whatever reason. Fast forward a few years, he introduces himself to me backstage as, as I make my debut at WWE. He says, hey, how you doing? I'm Court Bauer. I said, yeah, I remember you. I wasn't good enough for your promotion. Yeah. And uh, he was, had that awkward moment where he goes, okay, I totally deserve that. Yeah, she did, and I walked away. But since then, uh, we've, we've gotten to be pretty cool. So, yeah, I was uh, supposed to have made my debut with MLW, uh, what, maybe 2003 or so? And uh, here we are 14, 15 years later. And you've had uh, quite the run across uh, professional wrestling since 2003. But I think it's really cool with MLW coming back, and we talked about this with Court at great length as this MLW empire has kind of taken on a, a subgenre of itself in professional wrestling. And you're, you're, of course, a part of that on the MLW VIP with your VIP Lounge podcast. But I guess, you know, getting back into the wrestling game is something that a lot of old school and hardcore fans would remember MLW pretty good. And uh, i got to say, as this card's starting to shape up, you're going to be taking on Sammy Callahan. What do you think of the talent signs so far and your match coming up with uh, – a very, very feisty individual in Sammy Callahan. Yeah, feisty is an understatement. Um, it's funny because when I first found out about the card, I told Court that um, he had, you know, I found out about the main event, and I thought that main event itself is enough to sell that card. Um, and then when he asked me if I would be involved, I told him, yeah, hey, you've got my full support with no idea who I'd be facing. If I knew I'd be facing Sammy Callahan, I may have had second thoughts. Um, you got a main event with Swerve Strickland and Ricochet, which is just going to be phenomenal, an all-out aerial assault. Then you've got uh, myself and Sammy Callahan that I promise you is just going to be... I think but when it's all said and done, we'll both need some ice packs. I had the pleasure of... Uh, battling him before for Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore promotion. And, uh, yeah, I had to eat soup for a few days. My jaw was pretty jacked up. Uh, we, we just went to battle. We pulled no punches. So uh, you got uh, Filthy Tom Lawler and, and Jeff Cobb. So you have an Olympian against a UFC fighter. Uh, and I heard just recently announced was Mia Yim and uh, 
is what Tessa Blanchard is it? Santana uh, Garrett. No, it's Santana Garrett. Santana Garrett. Santana, okay. Well, another pretty brunette, just to say. Um, both challenged women, nonetheless. Uh, Mia Yim is a, a, a friend, Mia Shelton Benjamin. We rag on her pretty hard, but we treat her like a little sister. We love her to death. She's extremely talented. So with just those matches on the card, you've got something pretty impressive. You've got ooh, ah, and oh. Me and Sammy Callahan will take care of the oh. Man, that had to hurt. And uh, so far, I hear there are people coming literally from around the world to converge on Orlando for this event. So I'm stoked. Yeah, it's definitely, like I said, it's probably the most anticipated event of the fall so far because it's got all different walks of life and all those names that you mentioned. It's just a very cool, eclectic collection of talent that's going to be all under one roof at the Guild Nightclub in Orlando, which, again, is another cool vibe to MLW, which is almost like a counterculture to traditional wrestling because it's giving you something a little different. So obviously, you know, you know professional wrestling history pretty well. You know, you've obviously been to MLW shows, and their rosters are always pretty eclectic and diverse, and there was a lot of guys who were on the MLW shows that went on to do a lot of great things in their career. So I guess if you can, you know, kind of comment on what I guess this card does mean to MLW because it is another great collection of talent and seeing what the old ones have done and now the new ones coming in, is, this, uh, is there a lot of expectations to uh, live up to with all the names that passed through MLW in the past? Um, you know, it's funny that you say that. I don't think that there's any expectation to live up to simply because every individual that you've named so far on the roster, it doesn't matter what the card is, what the promotion is, when they've laced the boots up and they climb into the ring, they have the highest expectations of themselves. And I, can, I think uh, everybody else in the roster would have no problem with me speaking for them in that regard. Uh, <clears throat> as far as MLW goes, yeah, they do have the history of providing very eclectic shows. And that the first time I ever saw Kojima live was in Fort Lauderdale for MLW. I remember a match with Sabu and La Parka that was, at that point, just without question, one of the most amazing matches I had ever seen. Add to it that La Parka and Sabu both were a little edgy towards each other. It was one of those, oh, let's see how this one works out. Turned out to be a phenomenal match. Um, so <clears throat> MLW, going back to its origins, you know, to the shows that I saw, always put out the best talent from all over the world, even before it was cool. So they were groundbreaking in that regard. Um, and once again, you know, in Orlando, they put together what I always believe wrestling should be. It should be a, uh, a, a buffet. You should have, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that because if you don't like this, you can overdose on that. So you've got, you know, Jeff Cobb and Tom Lawler will take care of the the, the technical grappling aspect, not to mention the phenomenal athleticism, athleticism of Jeff Cobb. I think he's going to surprise a lot of people who've never seen him before. Um, you've got me and Sally Camp, uh, Sally. <laughs> yeah, Sally, Sally Callahan. That's, yeah, that's what I'm, I'll call him Sally. Sally Callahan. Tell him I call him Sally. Uh, Sally Callahan, um, we're just going to beat the fuck out of each other. It's not going to be pleasant. It won't be pretty. It won't be technical. It won't be high flying. It'll be painful. And um, then, like I said, you've got just the phenomenal aerial acrobatic style of, of Ricochet and, and Swerve Strickland. So, you know, I always say that when I'm on shows, you know, I look at the show, you've got ooh, ah, and so um, 
I think, as I said before, with the main event, you're going to get all of the, ah, and uh, with Jeff Cobb and, and, and Tom Lawler, you're going to get a bunch of, ooh, and with me and Sammy Callahan, you're going to get the, oh, so everybody who shows up in attendance is going to be something for everybody, and I think overall, the card in general is just one that's stacked from top to bottom. Nobody's going to come away dissatisfied. And anybody with a Sally Callahan sign will get uh, extra points for uh, for listener participation, uh, no doubt. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, uh, you show up with a Sally Callahan sign, and, and uh, I'll personally come out and shake your hand and take a selfie with you in the audience. <laughs> pressure, pressure is on, world, for anybody going to uh, the Guild Nightclub that night. But then I guess let's just – Dial it back to Court Bauer, I guess, with building this MLW empire and him getting back into the Booker's chair. And with the brain trust that he's gotten in place here for this show, you know, he learned under the Gary Hart learning tree and all the legends he had come through MLW, whether it was Terry Funk or Dusty Rhodes or a lot of the, uh, the extreme guys that came through. Do you think this is something for him that is pretty self-satisfying, that he gets to bring back a promotion that he worked so hard on for many years and now he gets to incorporate all these great names that he's worked with on his new ventures and kind of bring all the worlds into one place. Um, I'm sure it's very self-satisfying for him. And the fact that, you know, what he thought he knew the first time he tried to run MLW versus what he's learned since then, he's in a much better position to be a success. I mean, I don't doubt – I didn't know Court back then very well. As a matter of fact, I didn't know him at all. So I don't know what he knew. I knew, the, you know, since then the learning trees that he sat under. But, I mean, let's just be you know, realistic. Think of what you thought you knew 10 years ago versus what you know now. So I think the road that Court has traveled from that time till now, he's uh, spent a lot of hours up underneath some of the best learning trees in the business. He's got lots more miles and uh, wisdom to go with that. So I think now, more than ever, he's poised to create the most successful promotion that he's ever been able to create. I mean, he had lofty goals the first time around with MLW, and um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to see them all through to fruition. But hopefully, this time, with all of the wisdom and experiences that he's gained and the incredible amount of international talent that's available now, um, hopefully we'll all see MLW become, uh, I mean, it's MLW one shot, but let's be realistic, right? If it's a huge success, is this the last time we're going to see MLW? I certainly hope not. And let's hope it's going to be a big success because, uh, you know, the wrestling world needs different kind of uh, wrestling, whether it be, you know, like you said, like the buffet of wrestling, which is way different than what you're going to get on Monday and Tuesday nights where there's more sports entertainment. So, you know, I got to just ask you about this because you you spend a lot of time in New Japan pro wrestling, and it was such a different, you know, different vibe and a different feel and different look of MVP than when you were in the WWE where it was more sports entertainment. What was that kind of transition like going from the sports entertainment world to the hard-hitting, strong-style world of New Japan pro wrestling? Uh, for me, it was very easy. I never missed a step because my dream was to wrestle in Japan. And people who know me know that that's WWE for me was the goal. I mean, yeah, it's the top company in the world. That's where you want to go when you lace up your boots. But for me, my dream 
was to wrestle at Corican Hall, to wrestle in, Tok- in the Tokyo Dome. And when I was at WWE, I used to say, you know, all the time, before I hang my boots up, at least once in my career, I want to hear that audience go, <laughs> that was That was, for me, what I needed. And people will ask me, MVP, you know, what, 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 you know, do you still get nervous or what's the match you were most nervous for? And it wasn't WrestleMania. It wasn't Wrestle Kingdom. It wasn't Bound for Glory. My, the, the one match that I was the most nervous for was my very first match at Corican Hall. Because to me, that place is ECW Arena and Madison Square Garden rolled into one. The fans that go there, they know wrestling extremely well. And they won't hesitate to let you know of your shit. And the fact that I was able to get an MVP chant in Cork and Hall from Japanese fans meant more to me than I could really express. So leaving the sports entertainment style of WWE to go to the hard-hitting, strong style of, of New Japan was uh, a very easy transition for me because it's what I always wanted to do. Now, as far as being in New Japan, you said you always had that love and that passion for Purasau, for the you know Japanese style. Where did that come from? Was it was it some sort of tape trading that you saw? What, what like what kind of attracted you to New Japan and to the Japanese style of wrestling? Norman Smiley was one of my early mentors. Um, I was trained by a guy named Soul Man Alex G, who was uh, part of the Soul Patrol with Global Wrestling back in the day. And uh, oh, yeah. as, as WCW was coming to its close. Norman would come around. I'm from Miami, and Norman lived in South Florida, and he came up with the guys and trained me. So he would come around, and for whatever reason, he just took a liking to me. And uh, I don't know, maybe he just saw my my uh, how seriously I took professional wrestling and, and my desire to make it uh, my career. And he started to spend time with me, just polishing me and, and refining me a bit. And one afternoon, we went to his house, and he popped in a tape and said, let me show you some cool shit. And I remember for the first time, I saw a tag team match with Manami Toyota, and I don't recall her partner against Aja Kong, and I don't remember who her partner was. I just remember seeing some of the most brutal, physical, death-defying wrestling I had ever seen. And at the pinfall... I stood up and I told Norman, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. And he said, Hassan, have a seat. That was just the first fall. And I went, what? <laughs> I want to do that. So then after that, he showed me, you know, matches with uh, Misawa and Kabashi and, and Kawada and, you know, that, that early 90s all Japan. And, you know, then they, my interest was peaked. And then, you know, and I come from the tape trading days. So the next thing I know, I'm just – you know, inundated with VHS tapes of Chono and, and, and Team 2000 and, and all of the stuff that really got me into Japanese wrestling. And growing up, I've always been a Japanophile. I've always been fascinated with the history and the culture of feudal Japan and, and you know, the anime culture. So <clears throat> discovering that, you know, they had professional wrestling there and that professional wrestling in Japan was treated more like sport than spectacle, it just... Uh, it, it hit me in all the right spots, and I said, that's, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go. I want to do that that way. So I guess at, at the end of the day, I have Norman Smiley to thank for that, who spent time over there wrestling for UWF 
uh, I think early 90s it was. Can't recall exactly when, but he uh, trained under the legendary Fujiwara and Minoru Suzuki and then that whole crew. And it's pretty amazing that you get to watch those guys and watch those tape training because I was a part of that tape training as well, watching the awesome Japanese wrestling, thinking like, wow, the, you know, how come we don't see you know this kind of you know hard hitting action here in the states? You don't see all these amazing wrestlers, amazing actions. So it's pretty cool that you go from watching uh, Minoru Suzuki to actually you know wrestling him and teaming with him and, and going against Suzuki Gun and being a part of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Is that kind of surreal to you? You know, you're watching this guy years ago on tape. Now you're in the ring with him? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the most surreal moment of my career, and I've, I've had a few, but um, Chris Benoit was my favorite wrestler, and he became my friend and my mentor. And when I got signed, he was more excited than I was to see him because he had taken an active interest in my career. He would call me up. And, you know, hey, hey, Hassan, have you, uh, you had any matches this weekend? Oh, yeah. And he'd ask me all about my indie matches and what was going on and how I was doing. So when I got called up to the main roster, he and I would train. We'd do 500 squats every day. He used to bring a weighted vest on the road. We'd do 500 squats and then run the stairs in the arena. And then I'd have to wrestle, you know, Kane or Undertaker that night. That was before our feud started. When our feud began... He went to Johnny Ace and asked for permission to have 30-minute matches with me every night. I was in the best shape of my fucking life because Chris Benoit had two speeds, hard and harder. And uh, so fast forward to WrestleMania, standing in the ring in Michigan, across from the guy who I spent countless hours studying his tapes and DVDs and I mean, in my head, you know, when I used to bounce at nightclubs, I'd, I'd wrestled him thousands of times probably. So when that moment came and I was standing in the wrestling ring at WrestleMania across from Chris Benoit for the United States Championship, I was waiting for the prison guard to kick my bunk and tell me to wake up because that was probably the most surreal moment in my career. But, you know, fast forward to be in New Japan and – have somebody who I revere, like Tenzan, when I asked Tenzan to take a picture with me, Riri, MVP, son, why you want a picture with me? You're a big superstar. I'm like, dude, you're a fucking legend, man. What do you mean? So, hmm. you know, surreal, like standing in the Tokyo Dome and looking around and going, wow, I used to watch VHS tapes dreaming about being here, and now I'm actually paid to be here. This is insane. But, um, yeah, I mean, Minoru Suzuki wrestling Kojima at the G1. And after the match, we both, people know MVP, I wear multicolored Breathe Right strips to match my gear. Kojima for his entire career has worn orange Breathe Right strips to match his gear. And after the match, he pulled his off and I pulled mine off and we exchanged Breathe Right strips in the ring. Like, yeah, I'd say that's pretty damn surreal. That's awesome. That is uh, quite a moment. Kojima, obviously, one of the all-time best, whether it's in New Japan or All Japan, wherever he goes, obviously, he's, he's unbelievable. But you wrestled him, wrestled Makabe, and then, of course, one of the most underrated guys, a guy like Goto and Hanma, all these just awesome guys when you just watch, like, man, this guy's underrated, this guy's underrated. When you're in there with them, do you almost say, 
you know, have that sense of like, man, why the hell is this guy so underrated? Uh, you know, he's just unbelievable, whether it be Hanma, Goto, or, you know, No, I, I never had a sense of that because I knew, you know, it, and that's one of the things that really got me over with the locker room in Japan. You know, I wasn't one of these obnoxious Americans that was just there for a check. When they found out I quit WWE to come into Japan, you know, they were beside themselves with, with they were just incredulous. And <clears throat> I think, you know, individually, they definitely raised my stock because I knew who they were. And, you know, when Makabe and I would be going over a match, you know, he was shocked that I knew his moveset. I knew his shit. So I wasn't wondering why they were overrated. I understood why. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but I pitched New Japan World to New Japan in 2011. I had a meeting with President Sugabayashi, Jado, and Gato, and I explained to them, I said, you have a huge audience that speaks English that wants access to your product. You need to create, at the, at, the, the, at the very least, just to start it out, a New Japan YouTube channel, feature a few matches, get a couple guys to do English commentary, do an English website, create an English merch section. You have a huge fan base in the States and, and in the UK and in Australia, an English-speaking fan base around the world that you're missing out on. And... Uh, you know, I guess timing is everything. It, you know, they weren't ready then. But now <clears throat> you've got people all over the world that, that, you know, have a subscription to New Japan World. You can't go to a wrestling show anywhere now without seeing a Bullet Club shirt. And I love it because New Japan Pro Wrestling was my favorite wrestling company. And, you know, to see the success and recognition that they got, to, to see Shinsuke Nakaba. I sent out a tweet when I was in Japan back in 2011, maybe 12, saying, and I remember I was talking about uh, Machine Gun Anderson and Shinsuke, and I said, you know, here are two of the baddest wrestlers you've never heard of. And now, you know, I, and then it's funny, too, because when I quit WWE to go to Japan, I had all these people laugh and ask me if I was crazy. People told me I was stupid. What was I thinking? Why was I going to wrestle in China? And all those people wear Bullet Club shirts now. So it makes me very happy to see the the – the style of wrestling that I'm so fond of, the company that I like so much, and the talent that I revere finally get the global recognition that they deserve. Absolutely, and it's great. Nakamura, obviously, now everyone knows who he is, but the guys that are still in New Japan that are just absolutely killing it, whether people are going to see them on New Japan World or maybe on Access TV with the New Japan show, but you got a guy like uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi, who's obviously the ace, who you wrestled over there. He, you know, the, he obviously does kind of like the rock star type gimmick, but is he truly, you know, a huge rock star over there? And you had the privilege of wrestling him. Is he truly the ace? Yeah. I mean, well, I think he's uh, been demoted to secondary ace with the emergence of Okada. Um, oh, yeah. Okada's come on strong, and I think Okada is now the ace. Uh, and, you know, it's pro wrestling. You can be exceptional, but Father Time wins all matches. Father Time's undefeated. So as awesome as Tanahashi still is, you know, it's in this business you have to make room for younger talent. You have to groom it. And Okada stepped up and, and by, without any question, carried that IWGP Heavyweight Championship like a true star should. Tanahashi was 
you know, during my time there, yeah, he was still the ace, but it was cool because I got to see Okada rise up and beat Tanahashi and, you know, step up to that next level. So it was phenomenal. But, you know, some people have made the comparison that Tanahashi was to New Japan what John Cena was to WWE. And I think that's a pretty fair comparison when you talk about, you know, the overall star power and what that star power meant to the company. Absolutely. And it's funny sometimes how you get the ace, Tanahashi, and sometimes, you know, you could screw up and and maybe give the wrong guy the ball. But, boy, did they give the right guy the ball with Okada because he's he's unbelievable and he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. He might be one of the best of all time if you really look at his match work and his in-ring work. He's just unbelievable. But back in about 2011 or so, when they were doing that invasion attack tour, that invasion tour of the USA, and you were a part of it, and it's funny looking back, it's like, wow, you beat Okada, who was very young at that point. You beat Naito, and that's the main event of the Wrestle Kingdom this year it's going to be. So what do you think of kind of being right there, almost leading up to, almost setting up for the boom period of New Japan of today? Um, oh man, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. And again, I, I, I laugh at seeing how far they've come. And I'm proud that, you know, that I was able – now, naturally, I can't take any responsibility for bringing, you know, New Japan the attention that it has now. But um, I can certainly take some credit for bringing some eyes over that way uh, because when people found out that I quit WWE to go to New Japan, um, all of a sudden there were people who didn't realize that wrestling existed outside of the WWE universe taking a look at what was going on. And then you got, you know, after that you had other guys like, Cody Rhodes left WWE and now, you know, he's doing big business with New Japan. Um, But I love the fact that, you know, the Okada that I wrestled that night in New Jersey isn't the Okada that stepped up to become the the IWGP heavyweight champion. You know, I I got to see a, a younger version of that guy. And I knew then, like, oh, yeah, he's going to be good. I had no idea at that point how good he was going to be. Same thing with Naito. Naito's phenomenal. One of the best matches I've ever seen in my life was Naito versus Tanahashi at, at, uh, at the uh, Sumo Arena. Absolutely phenomenal. One of the most phenomenal matches I've ever seen in my entire career. Um, so I'm so happy to see guys like Naito and Okada step up to that next level and get their opportunity to be the superstars that they deserve to be because without question, they have the skill set, they have the attitude, they have the work, the drive, the tenacity, all the tools are there. So um, it's a beautiful thing to see. And like I said, it's also cool that now there is a U.S. audience that is appreciating their work outside of Japan. And it creates a larger financial opportunity for them and for New Japan. And, you know, I'm always for the boys. If it's good for the boys, then I'm all for it. Did you ever think you'd see the fan base crossover so much, though? Because if you watch a WWE show or an NXT big, you know, event like their, uh, their takeover shows, and you see a guy like, uh, like Nakamura come out, and the fans already know everything about him. They know his moves. They know what to look forward to. They know the mannerisms. Did you ever think that the crossover of the fans would hit WWE the way it has because I could tell you right now I don't think WWE ever thought those fans existed outside of their quote universe Um, well I think first of all you have to recognize that there's 
definitely been a philosophy shift at the top of WWE. Well, once upon a time, they refused to acknowledge that wrestling existed outside of their universe. Um, now they're actually embracing the fact that wrestling exists outside of their universe. You know, with, with the, the popularity of NXT, um, them bringing in guys and allowing guys to keep their identity, you know, with not, not hijacking guys' identity, uh, identities like, like they were so known to do. You know, to me, the American Dragon will always be Brian Danielson. I don't know who this Daniel Bryan guy is, but, you know, I know the American Dragon. <clears throat> and I think with the popularity of social media and YouTube, this is an amazing time for the business like never before because, and I've, I've, I've said this on my own podcast, the VIP Lounge, it's, it's phenomenal that now a guy from England can show up at PWG Gorilla in Los Angeles and wrestle at the Battle of Los Angeles. And everybody there already knows who he is because of YouTube, because of social media, because of internet-based pay-per-view companies and so forth and so on. So it's, it's a resurgence. And as far as the WWE recognizing, you know, that fan base, um, I think they realized that they had to change their business model somewhat because you can't just continue to deny that this, there's a boom of wrestling going on in England and that New Japan is blowing up and, and um, you have all of these independent wrestling companies popping up. Some are awful, but some are very good. So uh, I think, and, you know, I don't know who was responsible for taking this new course of action, you know, at WWE, but it behooves them to recognize that, there's a lot going on and there's talent outside of, of their main roster. And as far as the fans are concerned, I'm happy for the fans because I've said for years, you had WWE fans and you had professional wrestling fans and the WWE fans, you know, if, if it wasn't WWE to them, it wasn't wrestling, you know, their brand saturation and their stranglehold of the market is so deep. Um, you know, it's like I laugh when I'll meet some airhead at a bar. She goes, my boyfriend's a UFC fighter. No, your boyfriend's an MMA fighter. He's not a UFC fighter. That brand saturation, when you tell somebody, oh, I'm a professional wrestler. Oh, you mean like WWE style or like college style? So <clears throat> now that WWE fans can see some of the Brilliance of guys like Zack Sabre Jr. or Will Ospreay or Marty Skrull in the UK and, and the names that you just mentioned, you know, Naito and Okada in Japan and other names, you know, from around the world. I, I think it's, it's, I'm happy for the fans of WWE that they can now be entertained by global wrestling. And I think it's, I think it's good for everybody. Now, your departure from New Japan for wrestling, I just wanted to touch on that real quickly because you, you seem so attached to the promotion. Obviously, you know, your MVP, you were, you were pretty over in, in Japan, and obviously we talked about Kirk and Hall, but why did you end up leading, leaving uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling? Uh, at that time, I had a few other projects that I was working on. I had a, a, a television show that was, came really, really close to production, and unfortunately, at the, you know, it didn't work out in the end. So um, I just wanted to take a year off to pursue some other things. And when I asked for my release from New Japan, actually, I didn't ask for a release because I never had a contract contrary to popular belief. 
um, I was getting a kick out of it when I would read how people would talk about my contractual obligations and what they were. I never had a contract with New Japan. It was a handshake deal, and my contracts were tour to tour. So I just informed them that I wouldn't be coming back. And, you know, they told me that they'd love to have me back and that I was in good graces with them. And I just took a year off to pursue other things. I started training jiu-jitsu and loving that. Started doing competitive jiu-jitsu, which I still do and still love. Um, and, you know, I don't regret taking a chance trying to do some other things. But there's a part of me that, that does regret leaving New Japan because I loved it there. I loved the fans. I loved the locker room. I loved the office. You know, I had, I had nothing bad to say about my time in Japan at all. If anything, um, I wish, looking back, that I had worked a little harder when I was there. Because by the time I got to New Japan, I wasn't the young, hungry guy that I used to be. So, you know, I probably, <laughs> at that point, cared more about what I was doing after the show than I did during the show. Not to say that I would skate. I'd go out there and I'd work. But, you know, the, the MVP that showed up at WWE as a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed rookie, uh, if that guy would have ended up in New Japan, uh, would have been a different experience for me because, I mean, truth be told, yeah, I was over and I was MVP and I, I was getting respect from the office and the boys. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed going out in the town and drinking and, you know, <clears throat> experiencing the nightlife. And so I, I probably didn't focus on my work as hard as I should have if I'm being 100% honest, but uh, just the same, I love my time there, and I wouldn't change anything about it. Now, since you mentioned uh, MVP, the rookie, I wanted to kind of ask you about how that all came about, because when we first saw you pop on the scene in the WWE, obviously, it, I guess it was kind of really started down there in, in Deep South, from Antonio Banks to Montel, Fontavious Porter, MVP, but when that character is kind of being developed, it's interesting when it first came out on TV, the character, the gimmick, the look, like everything about you was like, man, this guy has something about him. It's got like main event or written all over him. Did you see that out of the character? Kind of what did you think? And, and, and how did that character develop itself? Well, the character WWE um, had, had numerous tryouts and, you know, I wrote Johnny off one day, Johnny Ace. I wrote him off, and I'm like, yo, can I get five minutes? And he's like, busy kid, can I get two minutes? Said, can I get 30 seconds? And he finally stopped. <laughs> he said, okay, you got 30 seconds. I said, tell me what the fuck I got to do for you to hire me. And I think Johnny was pleasantly taken aback by that. Because who the fuck talks to Johnny Ace like that, right? And mm. uh, <clears throat> he said, we like you. We just don't have anything for you come up with uh, going to more character-based uh, personalities, come up with something we don't already have that you can do, and uh, get back with me. And I was pissed off because I was like, look, they blew me off again. Uh, but at that time, I was working down on South Beach doing nightclub work and bodyguard work, and I would see these self-absorbed, pompous, overpaid pro athletes show up feeling like the world owed them something. And uh, <clears throat> I remember, you know, guys like... Shaq or Barry Sanders or uh, Dr. J, like bona fide legends would come through. 
and they'd always, you know, stop and, and shake hands and talk, and they were very humble. And then I'd see guys who were like, you know, first round draft pick busts showing up with entourages, like the world owed them something, being rude and, and disrespectful. And I thought, man, that hasn't been done in wrestling yet. Not not that way. This is a relatively new phenomenon. Every week you can turn on Sports Center and there's a pro athlete that's getting him in trouble, saying or doing something stupid. So uh, I put together a package, and uh, to this day, if you ask Court, he'll tell you it's one of the most impressive things he's seen because they never received anything quite like it. But I said, okay, you know, this is the top company in the world. I want to be a professional. I put together the most professional treatment explaining what the MVP character was, who he was. I included pictures so they could see how I dressed. I included 20 storyline and vignette ideas. And then I sent two promos. One that was one minute so they could see I could hit uh, time and tell a quick, concise story. And the other one was four and a half minutes so they could see that I could tell a story, entertain, and kill time. And uh, Court was the one that told me. Court Bauer said that uh, they showed it to Vince. He said, Vince, we want you to have a look at this. And Vince's response was, God damn it, let's get him on TV. And I said, well, Vince, he's not signed yet. Well, why the hell not? And I got a call from Johnny Ace uh, maybe a week or so later. So the MVP character was my idea, and I pitched it to them, and they liked it. So a lot of the ideas for, you know, the evolution of the MVP character were mine. And I'll always give credit to WWE and Vince for allowing me to embody the vision of what I had for the character. Um, you know, the original outfit that I came out with, that was not my idea. That was fucking bullshit. <laughs> that was not <laughs> what we discussed at all. That was the, uh, the the seamstress just decided to do her own shit. That was, that was not the design we discussed. And I remember I went to Vince. I said, Vince, this doesn't look like a high-performance athlete, man. This looks like... Uh, and, as a matter of fact, I, I remember specifically saying that it looked like something Brian Boitano would wear, not something MVP would wear. And uh, <laughs> Vince's response was, I love it. Your ego is going to get that over. I said, well, you sign the check. If, if you love it, then I love it too. I'll make it work. And uh, it's funny, when I got set on fire, I hated that outfit, that first design. I hated it so much that when we did the angle with Kane to set me on fire, when we did the test run, that was the outfit that I used. <laughs> we burned that one just to on, on, on the trial run, just so we could, uh, <laughs> so I could be done with that shit forevermore. That is, great. and you know, it's, it's funny. Things, uh, you know, it, it's one thing about the professional wrestling business. It's you know, there's peaks and valleys, and um. You know, we've seen it time and again, guys that had big promise that for whatever reason, things didn't work out the way they planned. You know, I had every belief I knew in my heart and soul that I was going to headline a WrestleMania. I knew it. There was no question in my mind. Um, but, you know, sometimes other things happen that are beyond your control, behind the scenes, and, you know, the careers take their course. Politics do always play a factor. Unfortunately, in wrestling, it does seem like that. But at one point, you were double champion. Obviously, great run with the U.S. title. Tag champ with uh, Matt Hardy. They were doing a lot of things with you. Were you kind of pleased? Obviously, you didn't get to the main event of WrestleMania like you wanted. But 
were you pleased with kind of what you did? Because, you know, you feuded with Undertaker, you feuded with Ric Flair, you know, you had a great feud with Matt Hardy. You did all these different things. Were you pleased with what happened? Well, I'm not disappointed at all. I mean, well, yeah, I definitely expected bigger things. Um, I, I'm not walking away holding my head in shame. Um, I mean, yeah, the fact that I wrestled my 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 idol, my favorite wrestler at WrestleMania, and beat him for the United States Championship. Um, Matt Hardy and I fucking carried SmackDown for most of 2007. Um, you know, with, with the accomplishments that I had there and the opportunities that were given to me, I'm I'm thrilled. You know, one thing I'll say about this, you know, there are people at WWE that work for that company that I wouldn't spit on if they were on fire. But then there are people there that gave me opportunities to literally save my life. Like, I say this about Vince McMahon. When, and I've said this exact quote many times, when society wouldn't give me the opportunity to earn a minimum wage job because I was an ex-convict, Vince McMahon took a chance on me to become a global superstar and make more money than both of my parents have made in their lives combined. He literally saved my life. Because if that hadn't worked out, there's a very realistic possibility that I probably could have gone back to doing criminal things. So I will, I will always respect Vince McMahon for giving me the opportunity that he did and taking the chance that he did with me because society wasn't prepared to take that chance despite the fact that I had paid my debt in full and Vince McMahon did. And I remember Nikita Koloff and Magnum TA feuding over the United States Championship. And I remember one day in Charlotte, North Carolina, no less, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was me and Edge against Flair and Batista in the main event. And I was a U.S. champion. And I walked into catering, and sitting at a table in catering was JBL, Dusty Rhodes, Barry Windham, and Magnum TA. And I think it was that moment, as a matter of fact, I'm certain, that was the very first time that I realized that I was that United States champion. The, 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 the championship that Nikita Koloff and Magnum TA feuded over was the championship that I carried to the ring every night. And I think the gravity of it hit me at that moment, like, dude, you're a U.S. champion. You can take your seat with those legendary U.S. champions. And as luck would have it, they actually called me over. Hey, MVP, come on over here. You know, and I, I shot the shit with them for a few minutes. But I think that was the first time that the gravity of my status in the history books hit me. Like, to be at WWE and, and, and to be wrestling and to be on TV was an amazing realization. But to, to be able to look back and think about, you know, the – the reverence that I held for, for, for professional wrestlers when I used to flip through the magazines and the ones that I saw on TV to know that I was now in that position. I was one of them. Um, it, it was mind-blowing. Awesome stuff. And I can't even imagine sitting there and looking across and having the JBL Dusty and Barry win the table. You know, you'd, I'd probably be like a little bit of a, of a mark out moment for me, I'd definitely be excited. And please don't leave out Magnum TA. <laughs> oh my leave God! Magnum and, TA oh, and, and, uh, and a good friend of the show, Magnum TA, he would kill me if I 
said I wasn't excited, but obviously a huge, huge legend uh, in the show. But as I start to wind it down here, it's been such an awesome talk with you. We got to talk a lot about New Japan, which was just uh, the high, high point for me. Obviously a lot about MLW. But have you had some other favorite matches in your career, maybe some from your uh, TNA run or maybe some early runs? Do you have any sort of favorite matches that you really stick out, obviously besides the ones we mentioned? Um, yeah, one of my favorite matches, I mean, yeah, I've been fortunate to have had quite a few. Um, you know, when I was at TNA, there is no particular match that sticks out. I'm lying. I almost told you a lie. There is one match that sticks out in my mind. Uh, Loki is a very, very good friend of mine, brother from another mother. We've been friends for a long time, probably my oldest friend in the business. And, uh, we got a chance to wrestle each other at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York for TNA. And uh, that match was absolutely awesome. And it was our first time working together. So I was so stoked about it. Um, I had a chance to work with Bobby Roode, who he's an incredible talent. Um, Austin Aries, Eric Young. There were some extremely talented guys that I had an opportunity to work with there. But um, overall... I, my time at TNA, the thing I loved the most was the uh, the run I had with Kenny King and Bobby Lashley, and then that morphing into the Beatdown Clan, where we later kicked out Bobby and then brought in Joe and Key. It was it was just so fun, and it's very sad how, unfortunately, just mismanagement and and uh, poor decision making brought that to an end. Um, no fault of my own, but. I had a match with uh, with Cody Rhodes once for NXT when they when it was just the the coaches and the pros kind of thing, and I used this match as an example to young up and comers to stress that hey to stand back in the locker room and spend three hours talking over a fifteen minute match. I get that you want everything to be perfect. <laughs> But in pro wrestling, everything isn't perfect, and things aren't always going to go the way you want them to go. And Cody Rhodes and I were the main event of NXT. And I think we had had 12 minutes allotted to us. And as Cody was walking to the ring, I could literally hear his name being announced, Cody Rhodes. Johnny Ace comes up to me and says, all right, kid, you guys just picked up two more segments. We scrapped everything else. I need two break spots. Now, Cody and I have been working together on the house shows pretty frequently. So, you know, we were, we had great chemistry and you know, he was awesome to work with a true professional. So I told John Ace, okay, well, here's one break spot. Here's the other break spot. Cody has no idea that we just picked up three segments. So for people who aren't familiar, a segment is, uh, is eight minutes and then you get a two minute commercial break. So we had three segments, which is, 24 minutes plus two commercial breaks. So now we're at 28 minutes. Originally, Cody thought we had 12 minutes. That's what we were allotted. So as I get to the ring, the referee comes over and he tells me, you guys know you just picked up two segments. I'm like, yep, tell Cody here's the first break spot. Here's the second break spot. Referee goes over to tell Cody what's going on. And Cody from across the ring, I see his face change. <laughs> Without any hesitation, he goes, what the fuck? <laughs> we go on, we have our match, hit the break spots, we're doing everything. I was supposed to go up 
we're going through the hot comeback. Cody's bumping and feeding. I grab his arm. I throw my leg over the back of his neck to hit the finisher. And the referee says, Vince says Cody's up. Vince says Cody's up. And from underneath my leg, I can hear, what the fuck? <laughs> so I just tell Cody, I said, reverse it. It's hit the crossroads. So I, we did it. He slipped through, hit it, boom, hit the crossroads, one, two, three. And the match was over. We made it. We survived. We didn't just survive. We thrived. And we get back through the curtain, and Vince is there with his headphones off, laughing hysterically, almost maniacally. <laughs> he, thought, he thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And if Cody and I weren't the caliber of professionals that we should have been, that would have been disastrous. Because, hey, man, if you spent three hours talking about 12 minutes and you get out there and find out, okay, well, now you got an extra 20 minutes, um, that's where being a top-tier professional comes into play. So I've, I've had a lot of matches that I'm very proud of and some that are, you know, as we discussed, surrealistic. But in terms of, of being a professional, being able to, to weather any storm and come out of any situation, uh, when, when the boss changes the finish as you're about to hit it, and you're able to seamlessly flow right through it and continue, and the match is still great, um, that's a testament to all of your hard work and dedication paying off, as well as the guy that I was working with, and that day it was Cody Rhodes. So that match is one that will always stick out to me as, as, as a personal favorite and one I like to share with young guys that are coming up to stress. Learn how to work, because shit ain't always going to be perfect. You know, sometimes that question could backfire on us because you just get a guy who either just says, oh, you know, I mentioned a, a match before, or, oh, yeah, you know, this match that, you know, it was in front of blah, blah, blah. But that was an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. That was fantastic. <laughs> what a uh, – what a, <laughs> you got me into that. I was waiting on the edge of my seat to see what was going to happen. But that was, uh, that was really sweet. But as we get to wrap it up here, the, the last question I'll ask you before we get into the big plug is, You've done so much, you know, and you were a fan and, and you got to overcome a lot of odds and you really went on to just have a hell of a career so far. But where do you think that career is going to take you over the next five years? Do we see another WWE run in the cards for MVP? Do you just keep doing your thing and reinventing yourself in different promotions? Or what do you think is going to be the next thing on the docket for MVP if you look five years down the road? Yeah, you know, five years from now, I hope I'm not I, – I don't plan to be bumping anymore. I'll, I'll be 44 in a few weeks. October 28th is my birthday. And um, I always said that I wanted, to, I, wanted to, I wanted to be done by the time I was 45, maybe 46 if I take a victory lap. Uh, you know, I, I want to walk away. I don't want to limp away. And, you know, too many guys sadly overstay their welcome in the business. And, you know, you see guys that, you know, were once highly revered, sadly become a caricature of what they used to be. And I hope that, you know, life and, and circumstances spare me that and I'm able to maintain uh, living my life on my terms. So far, my wrestling career has been on my terms. I've done it pretty much the way I wanted to do it, where I wanted to do it. And, uh, <clears throat> When I'm five years from now, in a perfect world, I'll be the owner and operator of a bar doing uh, motivational speaking 
And as far as professional wrestling is concerned, I certainly hope I'm not still out bumping in the ring. But if uh, if the circumstances are right, and you know the you know somebody wants my experience or, or my promo ability or something along those lines to to help the next generation or you know to to help out younger guys. That's something I'd potentially be interested in. But when I retire, when I say I'm done, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to unretire multiple times. Um, I, I wanted to mean something when I, when I finally say I'm done. And, you know, I, I see that looming very, very near on the horizon. So, um, yeah, if I can have a, a, a cool neighborhood tavern that's wrestling friendly and you know, still travel a bit, going around motivating people, telling my story, and then, you know, uplifting others. That that would be the perfect happy ending for me. I'm a dad now. I have a son. He'll be three in a couple of weeks. So, you know, so many things have changed for me, things I didn't expect. Um, you know, pro wrestling has been very good to me, changed my life, saved my life, but uh, it doesn't define who I am. And, you know, when when I meet people, I introduce myself as Hassan. That's my name. MVP is a character that I play. And when it's all said and done, you know, I don't need MVP to continue to validate my existence. I can put MVP up on a shelf and be very proud, you know, like a trophy of, of everything that MVP encapsulates. And, you know, like I said, quite possibly use that to help other young guys, young men and women, you know, who, who want to, I, I have no intention of opening a wrestling school or teaching wrestling. I, Nothing like that. As far as uh, another WWE run, uh, it's highly, highly unlikely. I mean, never say never because stranger things have happened. But, you know, I, I think that ship has sailed. I think that's a, a chapter that's pretty much done as far as me being an in-ring talent um, regarding maybe showing up again one day behind the scenes as a commentator or something like that. I'd be open to it. But, you know, on on MVP... I can tell you the clock's winding down, and these are the uh, these are the final years. Maybe you'll be hosting uh, MLW Twelfth Shot at your uh, your little establishment there in uh, in five years. But as we wrap it up here, we want to just throw it out there one more time that it's October fifth, the return of MLW MLW One Shot. You're going to be getting in the ring with Sammy Callahan. We heard at the top of this what we have to look forward to. Sally Callahan. Sally. Say excuse me. Sally Callahan, and for all those Sally Callahan signs, MVP is going to personally come out and shake your hand. So uh, I guess as we wrap it up here, MVP, just share with the listeners of the two-man power trip where they can find everything going on in your world, as well as one last pitch for MLW's One Shot. You can follow me on Twitter at The305MVP. I'm on Instagram at Truly underscore MVP. Uh, My Facebook fan page is uh, Montel Vontavious Porter Official. Uh, I also have a Bandcamp page where I I do music, do my own theme music. If you like hip-hop, check it out. It's MVP305 slash Bandcamp.com. A lot of the music you can download for free. Some of it you name your own price. Uh, What else is there? Oh, I have my podcast, the VIP Lounge, which you can uh, – it's on iTunes or MLWRadio.com. Uh, me and former head writer for SmackDown, Alex Greenfield. Uh, our podcast is, I like to call it the, 
the wrestling podcast, not about wrestling. It's the podcast for the intelligent mark, not the smart mark, because we talk about wrestling for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and the rest of it is pop culture, music, uh, current events, politics, what have you. Um, so it's for people who are wrestling fans but like to talk about things other than wrestling. And, of course, oh, oh, I got a pro wrestling tees store, prowrestlingtees.com. Go on there, pick out an MVP T-shirt. If you buy one, my good friend Bruce Pritchard taught me that it's only polite to say thank you. So if you buy a T-shirt from the ProWrestlingTees.com store, an MVP shirt, I will personally call you to thank you and chop it up with you for a little bit. Um, by all means, please, please, please check out MLW One Shot, October 5th. Uh, it's in Orlando at Guild Nightclub. And if you can't actually make it to attend in person, it's available on what is it MLWTV.com or something like that? It's uh, I know MLW is making it available to view. MLW, there it is, MLW.TV. I promise you, you won't regret it. You got a main event. It's just going to be hard to follow. Well, that's why it's the main event, so nobody will follow it. Uh, Swerve Strickland and King Ricochet, me and uh, Sammy Callahan knocking the snot out of each other, Jeff Cobb and Filthy Tom Lawler. Giving, probably putting on a technical clinic. Uh, I mean, top to bottom, the car stacked. I don't even have to sell it. It sells itself. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.